Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. Well, hello, my friends. So glad to be back with you here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. I know it's been a few weeks since I've last recorded here in the studio. And the reason for that has been out there teaching a lot, defending the faith, equipping the church, young people, older people, and just so excited to see what God is doing in his church, the bride. So thank you for all of you who have been praying, anticipating the times that we've been able to connect in different cities and different states at different events. So I've just been so blessed as I reflect back thus far. Obviously, we still have many more travels to come, but got back here in the studio now, excited to be with you as we continue our chronological teaching in the Gospel of Count. So today, this is Podcast 85, and the title is, It's Better to Serve Than to Be Served. Now, if you've missed out in any previous podcast, you can always go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcast. My notes are there, and we are also on Google Play, iTunes, and other platforms. Now, if you've missed the previous podcast, Podcast 84, I encourage you to listen to that one because this one really picks things up right after I ended last podcast because it's a continuation of a lesson that Jesus continues to teach here in Matthew chapter 20. So what we're going to be looking at is Matthew 20 verses 1 through 34, Mark 10, 32 through 52, and Luke 18, 31 through 43. Now Matthew 21 through 16 is the parable and it's a continuation from Matthew 19, 16 through 30. So I'm going to go ahead and read that to you. And put in perspective of what Jesus is talking about with this parable about the laborers in the vineyard. Now, before I jump right into and read this parable, I will say this. This definitely, the one here in Matthew 20, 1 through 16, is a parable that causes a lot of confusion. I've had a lot of people come to me and say, I know that God does not have favorites, but why is he explaining this parable the way that he's explaining it? Because it kind of shows that he does. So we'll definitely get into that. So let's pick things up here in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning, that's early dawn, about 6 a.m., to hire laborers, daily workers, for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, which is a Roman silver coin for each day, he sent them into his vineyard. So we see right off the bat that Jesus is transitioning, as I mentioned earlier, from the previous parable, Matthew 19, 16 through 30, and describing the kingdom of heaven. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's telling this parable to convey to his disciples, and for us reading it today, that we are all, as his followers, to receive a future reward according to Matthew 19, verse 27. And so now he's going to be using a master in his vineyard to betray God's graciousness and his generosity in the world. We see that in Matthew 19, verse 30, into Matthew now, chapter 20. Now, these laborers, it was very customary for them to go out into the marketplace and to sit there waiting to be hired by a master of his vineyard, of his property, to work throughout the day. 
Now, in those days, the taxation was very high. People were in massive debt, so they may have had other jobs. And so sometimes other family members, or in this case, maybe um, you know some uncles and some fathers and older sons, they would do additional work in vineyards as a source of extra income to help them survive. So that's the condition of these laborers. Now it says in verse 30, and going out about the third hour, so this is 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle, meaning they weren't doing anything in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour, which is noon, and the ninth hour, 3 p.m., he did the same. So here we see that the master, as the workers are there, he picked them up early in the morning. He has more work, so he needs more workers. So throughout the day, he keeps going back into the marketplace and he keeps picking up more laborers. Now, if you recall, remember the people that were picked up the first part of the day, early in the morning at 6 a.m., roughly, they worked out a deal where they were going to receive the average payout at the end of each workday, which was a denarius. But notice here, it says, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they go. Now, the laborers assumed because they were hired later in the day that they would not you know, receive a denarius. So they would get less than that because that was common. Now, notice in verse 6, though, he needs more workers. And about the 11th hour, 5 p.m., so at the end of the day, he went out and he found others standing now, what's interesting is that there are still people out there in the marketplace willing to work for an hour, meaning you get paid very little, but nonetheless, they're there. And he says to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Verse eight, and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now, this is important because according to the law, Leviticus 19, verse 13, and Deuteronomy 24, verse 15, laborers, that is hired workers, they were paid at the end of the day. Now, we're told here in this parable from, from the beginning of the last person up to the first. Now, remember, this was an expression that Jesus used in Matthew 19, verse 30, but many who are first will be last and last will be first. But the people who started at the very end of the day were being paid first. Now, this is interesting because notice in verse 9, and when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a what? A denarius. Verse 10 tells us, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. This is understandable, by the way, because if you think about it, if those who worked only an hour received a day's wage, then the men who worked all day of course, what would they think? They thought it was only reasonable that they would receive more than that. Even though, remember, they agreed in the morning to a day's wage. Verse 11, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only an hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. So it's not only obvious, but it's understandable why these laborers who've been working all day receive the same amount. But what Jesus is pointing out in this parable, because when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, yeah, I get it. I understand. I would be upset too. But what Jesus is pointing out beyond their anger is their lack of compassion and how consumed they were with what was unfair. Because notice in verse 13, but he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give 
to this last worker as I give to you? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Literally in the Greek, that phrase means, are you looking at me with evil intent? So the master questions the man's complaints by challenging him based on what they agree to. Furthermore, the master proceeds to challenge the worker on generosity and authority. The master had a right to judge based on the level of contribution and give away what was rightfully his. So when we see that and we counterbalance it to the anger and what was unfair, we say, well, no, the master actually brings a good point out. It's his money. They agreed to that and he gave them accordingly. He didn't rip off the people he picked up at six o'clock in the morning and he told the rest of them, I will give you what is fair. So they just assumed, well, it would be less than a denarius because we haven't done a full day's work. Verse 16, so the last will be first and the first will be last. This is a paradoxical uh, value that, that Jesus is using to the kingdom of heaven that is sometimes hard to reconcile here on earth. The New Bible Commentary puts like this, in a society with no welfare provision or trade unions, where unemployment meant starvation, the action of the landowner in employing extra workers whom he did not really need so late in the day was an act of generosity. But even more extraordinary was a rate of pay, which made no economic sense and understandably provoked grumbling among those who felt unfairly treated. It was not unfair, of course. No one was underpaid. It was just that some were treated with unreasonable generosity. That is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, the ESV commentary says it like this, a disciple of Jesus should not measure his or her worth by comparing it with the accomplishments and sacrifices of others, but should focus on serving from a heart of gratitude in response to God's grace. Jesus is not denying degrees of reward in heaven, but is affirming that God's generosity is more abundant than anyone would expect. All the laborers except the very first got more than they deserved. It is probably correct also to see here a warning that Jesus' early followers, such as the twelve, should not despise those who would come later. And just to add before I move on, this is why this is so confusing because people look at that and think that's not fair. But if you notice, it is. It's an unreasonable generosity. There are people who will come to Christ who were murderers, people who did horrible, despicable things. And you and I can look at that and think, how do they deserve to go to heaven? God, why did you, why did you extend such grace to them? You know what? That's not our call. And not only that, but there are a lot of things that we do in life and we're going to think, you know what? That wasn't really anything special. Even though, yeah, I felt God, you know, you told me to do it and I just want to live out the golden rule. I want to live out my faith. You know, I'm kind of sharing Christ. I'm doing some generous things. I just recently when I was speaking somewhere, a, a young girl came to me and she just wants to serve. And she had, I just felt like just a gift of mercy and just very hospitable. And, you know, nobody knows her, if you will. She's not like a famous person. But I just saw the Holy Spirit in her life. I'm thinking, this is a life that God rewards. And, you know, for the most part in this world, people don't know that. They don't know this girl, but God does. And so I just want us to kind of think about that. So look at your life. Your life is about building up and expanding the kingdom of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
and to work for these rewards that our Heavenly Father wants to give us. And so when, when you and I see people who get things that we think they don't deserve, we got to make sure that we're not being so selfish, but we need to be gracious. And that's the point of the parable. So now we transition to an event where Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. Now, this, of course, is very unique because Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem as the people are traveling to participate in Passover. So this is found in Matthew 20, 17 through 19, Mark 10, 32 through 34, Luke 18, 31 through 34. Now, as always, I've taken the Synoptic Gospels and I've compiled them into one narrative. So we pick things up now here in Mark 10, verse 32, and they, the disciples, were on the road going to Jerusalem, so points out the high elevation with the topography, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now, Jesus, remember, he oftentimes did this. He would walk ahead of the disciples, and sometimes this is an indication, not just that he knew where he was going and they didn't, but it shows his determination to get to Jerusalem. And as they were going, it says here that many were amazed. Literally, they were astonished at an unusual event, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Luke 18, 31 says, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Mark 10, 33, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, when you take the picture that is given here by the Synoptic Gospels, you can see, you can sense too in their writings and just as you read through it, that things are intensifying. Now this phrase, son of man, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. Now as you've been following along in our chronological teaching, this is the third recorded time where Jesus mentions his death. He predicts his death and resurrection. But notice, this is the first time actually where he mentions his perpetrators before he never did that in Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 30. And 31. But here he says the chief priests and the scribes, so he points out the very religious leaders that are leading the temple, who you guys think are godly, they're going to be the ones who are going to kill me. Luke 18, 34 says, but they understood none of these things. These sayings were hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. So although this is the third time Jesus predicts his suffering, his death and his resurrection, the disciples still think the kingdom is coming in a matter of days. Matter of fact, when he enters in Jerusalem on a donkey, they believe it's right here, right now that he's going to establish his kingdom because they kept seeing Jesus as victorious. There's no way in their minds could they comprehend seeing him being abused by the religious leaders. That's why talk about him dying was the furthest thing from their mind. If you go back to Luke 9 verse 45. Now, in the midst of this confusion, and they're kind of afraid, they're anticipating something. If you've ever had that feeling, something's just not right. This is what they're sensing. They're, they're, you know, optimistic, but they're confused. And Jesus would say things that cause a lot of confusion. There's crowds of people around him. And of course, he's done great, wonderful things. They do believe he's a son of living God, but there's just not something right. Well, in this situation, notice now in the second event, where James and John take this opportunity as they're heading to Jerusalem, as they're all anticipating him establishing his kingdom, which was not the case, not like they thought it was going to be. James and John, nonetheless, take this opportunity to speak directly to Jesus with their mother. 
This is found in Matthew chapter 20, 20 through 28, Mark 10, 35 through 45. And as always, I've combined the two into one narrative. So notice what Matthew 20, 20 through 21 says. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. So the mother here of James and John is going to Jesus on their behalf to talk to them. However, however, in Mark's gospel in verses 35 and 36 of chapter 10, he says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand in your glory. So again, Matthew records the mother of James and John, which her name, by the way, is Salome in Mark chapter 16, verse 1, which by the way, in Matthew 27 and 56 and Mark 15, verse 40, guess who is there at the cross and also their days following the resurrection of Jesus? Salome is. So even though right off the bat, when you're kind of looking at this, you think, what audacity. Now, again, let's be cautious here and be careful because she's a follower of Jesus. She was there. Remember when a lot of the disciples abandoned Jesus, she was there. And also we sometimes cut our mothers a break, right? She thinks her kids are great. All mothers think their kids are great. So, you know, look, the other disciples' mothers weren't going to Jesus and asking this. Why not her, right? And so the bottom line is James and John, they knew better. This phrase, grant us to sit, they approached Jesus as a king. And as they viewed him that way, they're coming to their king who's going to establish his earthly you know, kingdom. They're requesting for the two highest positions of honor and authority. This was a selfish request. And it proved that the disciples were so fixated on this political kingdom that he was going to establish in Jerusalem than anything else. Mark 10, 38 through 45, and Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking, meaning you're acting in self-interest. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Matthew 20, 23 says, you know, it in a, in a plural sense, speaking to not just the sons, but the mother are you able to drink my cup or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So he adds a more graphic display of his suffering and his death. Remember, because he just talked about his the prediction of his death and resurrection. And now he's talking about this baptism. Drink my cup. This was a symbolic reference to one's determined destiny. We see that in Psalm 16, verse 5 and Jeremiah 25, verse 15. So Jesus started off by prophesying about his death. And now he's giving a prophecy of the future death that his disciples will face. Verse 39, and they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. So at this point in time, at this stage of the ministry, James and John, they believe that they are willing to fight for Jesus's causes. They're thinking it in a wrong sense though, right? Because it's going to be a political kingdom. They weren't able to grasp the level of suffrage that Jesus was going to go through in the next few days and that they're going to endure. Now the apostles though, they would one day endure many afflictions. And that's so amazing about their testimony. They will face martyrdom one day. 
for their belief in Christ. Matter of fact, when you look at the life of James, he would soon be executed under Herod Agrippa I in AD 44, according to Acts 12, verse 1. And we know the story of John. He would be greatly persecuted. They would try to kill him. He would be tried many times, and then, and then he will be sentenced to exile on the island of Patmos when you see that according to Revelation chapter 1. Verse 40, Jesus says, But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Matthew 20, 23 says, By my Father. So Jesus demonstrates his sonship by submitting to the will of the Father. He honors God's kingdom. Um, it's not to be gained or achieved by selfish ambition. The the brothers were so focused on what their mother wanted, including themselves, to do what their family wanted, to do the will of the family, if you will. But Jesus, his sonship is greater, obviously. And he's saying, I'm here to do my father's will. And what you're asking me is not my right to give. It is given by God. It's given by his mercy and his grace. It is a father who decides what privileges how we are honored, and what is given to the children. He just talked about that, member in the parable. And that's the thing. What God does is unreasonably generous. It doesn't make sense to us. But yet James and John, like we oftentimes do, we try to get it our way because we think we're like entitled to it. And notice in verse 41, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant, meaning they were greatly displeased. They were so upset and angry at James and John. And Jesus calls to them and he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, meaning a substitute for many. So Jesus uses the selfish ambition. He takes this incident of James and John and now the conflict that it created among the other disciples. And he uses it as a reminder to show them what true living is all about, what it means to be a selfless servant. That in essence... And this is the bottom line. He'll do it again when he washes their feet in the upper room. Humble service is what God rewards, which now leads to the final event in our podcast today, blind Bartimaeus, who is healed by Jesus and with another friend of his. This is recorded in Matthew 20, 29 through 34, Mark 10, 46 through 52, in Luke 18, 35 through 43. And once again, I've compiled all of it, but these are all my study notes. You can go to standstrongministry.org, click on podcasts, and my study notes are here on podcast 85. But I put into one narrative. So we pick things up here in Mark 10, 46 and says, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, now this great crowd, remember, these were the people, they, these were Passover pilgrims, we call them. And they're heading to Jerusalem with Jesus and his disciples. And Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, we're told, was sitting by the roadside begging. Matthew 20, verse 30 says, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Now, it's important to note that as Jesus was leaving Jericho, the question is, was he leaving the old Jericho or the new Jericho? Because they were several miles apart from each other. Now, Sweet writes, quote, The new Jericho was about five miles west of the Jordan and 15 east of Jerusalem near the mouth of the Wadi Kelt, in more than a mile south of the site of the ancient towns, end quote. So it seems the Gospels pinpoint this encounter of the two blind men in between both Jerichos. 
Now, Jericho was the only major city for travelers who were going up from the Jordan Valley to the holy city of Jerusalem. So I believe at this point, Jesus was probably seven to eight days out from the crucifixion as he was traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. And these two blind men, Matthew's account, right, mentions both of them. And blindness was a very common disease because of the conditions in those days. And here Mark and Luke, they just they just kind of stick to the main character, Bartimaeus, because, you know, perhaps he was the most prominent person. Maybe he was a recognizable person. And the reasons we believe that is because they refer to him by name and they also list his father, Timaeus. So he probably came from a prominent wealthy family. Now, Luke 18, 36 through 37 says, And hearing a crowd going by, he, Bartimaeus, inquired, meaning he sought information. He demanded answers from the crowd of people, you know, saying, what is this? What does this mean? What are you guys doing? And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. In Mark 10, 47, and when he, literally in Greek, they, Matthew 20, verse 30, heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, they began to cry out loudly, insistently, shouting and crying out, saying, Mark 10, 47 through 48, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, Bartimaeus and his colleague, they're acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. This is straight from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. And I believe, remember, going back to the prominence of Bartimaeus, I believe, I don't know, again, we're not told at what point he was blinded, but I believe he was educated. He knew the scriptures. And so when he was crying out, have mercy on me, he's referring to 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, which says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This was the moment Bartimaeus and his colleague are crying out, for Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, to have mercy. He's saying the intensity here, it's like he's going to be establishing his kingdom right now. In verse 48, and many, those who were in front, Luke 18, 39, rebuked, repeatedly ordered him, telling him to be silent. But they all the more cried out saying, son of David, have mercy on us. So many in the front of the crowd were attempting to silence Bartimaeus and his colleague so that they wouldn't distract or delay Jesus as he headed to Jerusalem. Now, Mark 10, 49, and Jesus stopped in Luke 18, 40, and commanded him to be brought to him. In Mark 10, verse 50, and he said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Verse 50, and, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus, Luke 18, 40 through 41. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, Rabbi, Master, let me recover my sight. Now, the fact that Bartimaeus was blind makes Jesus' question a bit unusual. But this was very common for Jesus to ask these, these questions that seemed obvious. And the reason for that was because, remember, there's a mob of people, literally probably thousands of people who were telling him to be quiet, but Jesus stopped and made an, and, and, and made observation and took it as an opportunity to see how he could help the blind man. And by asking this question publicly was Jesus's way to say, look, give me your request, demonstrate your faith, and people will witness a miracle right here and right now if you have faith. And Matthew 20, verse 34, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes. Luke 18, 42 and 43. And Jesus said to, to them, recover your sight. 
Your faith has made you well. Literally in Greek, this word well means it has saved you, which points to the fact that both of these blind men had faith in Jesus as their Lord. And immediately he, they recovered their sight and followed Jesus on the way, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So this is a beautiful encountership because Bartimaeus displays great faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And right there on the spot, he's healed by Jesus in front of thousands of people. You know, my friend, I can't help but think, when was the last time we were worshiping the Lord, maybe in a service, maybe in an event where we were gathered to glorify the name of God and there in the midst of us, someone is healed. And I, I have to believe that that not only goes on, I've, I've seen it, I've witnessed it. I don't just believe these passages, but I believe God is still healing today. But I think a lot of times we don't see that because nobody anticipates it in faith. So I pray this story is a reminder that God is at work. Now this last recorded healing of Jesus before the Passion Week, I believe is a beautiful picture of the gospel. One commentary puts it like this, Jesus acknowledged Bartimaeus' faith. Go, your faith has healed. Seskoian in Greek, saved you. Faith was a necessary means not the efficient cause of his healing. Bartimaeus' physical salvation, that is his deliverance from darkness, blindness to light, to sight, was an outward picture of his spiritual salvation, end quote. So as we wrap things up, my friends, I pray that you would be a servant, that you would have faith like Bartimaeus, and that you do not underestimate the power of God around you. I pray that you continue to use the gifts that God has given you so that you will receive the rewards that are coming your way someday when he returns. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Until next time, keep standing strong. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the word of God.